Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello! Welcome to another episode of Better Words. Michelle, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. I um, You can't see this because it's a podcast, but I cut my own hair yesterday and it <laughs> didn't turn out disastrously. Good. Very proud of you. Another thank thing you. that no one can see because of this podcast, but I think I mentioned it in our last introduction, um, I built the Friends Lego set. You built it. You built the whole thing. I built the whole thing. It didn't actually take that long. I built the whole thing um, over this past weekend, um, and now it's sitting on my bookshelf. So I'm going to have to take a few photos of it and brag about my Lego expertise on my Instagram. Cute. And before we get into our book club as well, I should say on the Lego theme that, um, Caitlin, you knew this because I told you, but I, I haven't mentioned it on the podcast, but Jack bought a Nintendo Switch. And mainly because we're, we're definitely going to have to quarantine, obviously, when we come back to Australia. And um, I think he'll just go a bit insane. Otherwise, he'd probably still go insane um, being locked in a room for two weeks. But it'll be something but... else for him to do. Exactly, exactly. Um, so he's got the Nintendo Switch. He's got some games on it, obviously. And he kept saying, like, you can buy some games too. And I've always, I've never been a gamer. I'd never, I wasn't allowed. How cute of him though, to be like, babe, you can use my game thing. (laughs) I know. I was like, oh, cool. Like there's nothing really. Look, as, as gamer as I got is playing The Sims, which I absolutely loved and I but you know why I loved playing The Sims is because I love designing the houses and everything but basically I was kind of like "Eh, I don't really know like the only game I knew was Animal Crossing and I wasn't really that keen on it nobody hate me for that but I'm just not into stuff anyway I basically did a Google search for like Nintendo Switch games for people who don't who aren't gamers and um eventually came across a Lego Harry Potter collection. Everyone was said was really good. Um, And it just so happened when we searched it, it was uh, like 50% off for one more day or whatever. So I was like, cool, that's what I'll get. And it's, um, I think my brother had like a version of this game probably um, on our Wii like years ago. It was like the seven years and you go through and do different things. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be exactly the same one. And this is like the compilation of you go years one to four and then five to seven separate. Um, And it's so much fun. And I have actually found that it's quite a mindful thing because I get into it and then I'm not because that that's this and was you're the like only thinking about the game yeah because I was finding it very hard to concentrate on movies and tv and books uh especially a bit earlier in the lockdown we're now into week nine I want to say maybe yeah Sheesh. week nine I know so um yeah oh also one more week in fact, by the time this episode airs, it'll only be a few more days until I can see my one of my gorgeous friends in person. She lives 20-minute drive away from me, but technically that's not local. So I haven't seen anyone but Jack in person or like 
the person at Tesco's for nine weeks um, and on March 8th we'll be able to go for walks outside together um, and I'm just really looking forward to having human contact <laughs> with another, but not contact because obviously we won't be touching or I mean we probably will be maybe within two meters of each other just because that's what happens when you walk with someone but we're not touching I haven't hugged her yet which is so weird because like even when Jack and I got engaged we couldn't hug them and it's just really really bizarre yeah anyway so that's exciting and I'm really looking forward to that so yeah that just I mean we've got two months left here basically and um I want to be able to see see people yeah yeah anyway Anyway, yes. Anyway, today, um, our book club. Yes, so our book club today, and yeah. you can listen. We're we're gonna try and not have spoilers as such, but then again, it is someone's memoir, so it's sort of yeah. It's not. There's not like a. It's not like a big twist at the end or anything to talk about. So we probably we probably will disclose some details because also I feel like this could be particularly divisive if you believe certain things and if this person is not your style we don't want you to go and buy it and then blame us for hating it so um we will be honest about certain things uh but yeah so the book Caitlin do you want to introduce it yes so the book for this week's book club is every lie I've ever told by Rosie Waterland Yay, which was my pick because I adore Rosie. Yes, um, you love Rosie. And because of you, I have had a copy of The Anti-Cool Girl, Rosie's first book, on my bookshelf for, I want to say I got it when we went to Brisbane that time and got like 20 books each from various oh, bookstores. I remember that. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. think I got it then. And I've never read it. Although now I will. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because some of the stuff that she talks about in Every Lie I've Ever Told sort of is explored in more detail. Anti-Cool Girl is more her childhood years. Yes. So the Anti-Cool Girl is, you know, is a memoir. Um, It's about Rosie's life or whatever. And so then Every Lie I've Ever Told, which we'll be discussing more today, is her second book. And I guess it is technically still a memoir. Memoirs like part of your life right and this is where people are like oh my god you're too young to have a memoir but it's not an autobiography it is a literary sort of inspection of part of your life as one may guess every lie I've ever told there are like sections broken out where it's a lie and she explains that this is a lie and the first one I think it's the first one or maybe the second one early on in the book is I've never planned my own wedding to no one. And I was like, (laughs) I love this because every time I watch a wedding movie, you know, like Bride Wars or like 27 Dresses or like some of these wedding movies, I just, I end up Googling wedding dresses and I'm like, I like this style as if that will come in handy one day. (laughs) I used to do that when I was a teenager, but can I just say as someone who is actually engaged now yes I am yes (laughs) um I was like oh gosh I don't have a Pinterest board or anything I actually after this reading this I was like 
She probably start looking at this stuff on Pinterest and working out. You're what like, I, I never wanted. thought about what I wanted. I didn't actually, because then I was like, oh, I, and I'm glad that I didn't because my style changed so much and like mm. it feels nice and free to have this. Anyway, that's a totally different discussion. Um, we should also mention, I think we should say up front that as a bit of a trigger warning, stuff that is discussed in this book includes um grief and loss, self-harm and mental illness. So if you find that particularly triggering, just like be aware, it explores some really tough things. But from from what I gather, and I should have looked into it before, but from what she says in the book, Rosie was writing every lie I've ever told with the lies at the time when her beautiful best friend, Tony, unexpectedly dies. And so what then became the book is the original lies punctuated by the the grief and the loss of Tony and that situation as well. So there's sort of parallel yeah. narratives. So there are the like chapters sort of about the lies and then these extra little stories in between that kind of then all ties together towards the end of the book. So having been persuaded to read this by me, what is your verdict? <laughs> Well, it's like this classic thing where you have been telling, you have, I feel like you have talked about loving Rosie almost the entire time I've known you. I can't, I'm not sure what the yes, timeline would we be met, there. We met, we met after my 20, I think we met just before my 21st birthday and yeah. I got given a copy of The Anti-Cool Girl for my 21st birthday by my beautiful friend, Becky. Um, and I'm so glad I did because it really, it was something really wonderful to read stepping into that letting go of a lot of stuff um but we had been quite obsessed with the batchy recaps back when Rosie used to write those for Mamma Mia um so we enjoyed Rosie's recaps um we knew her book was coming out and then Becky got that for me so yeah I basically have been obsessed with her the whole time I've known you yeah so yeah you're right you have been talking about it the whole time and I'm sure you convinced me to buy it when we were in Brisbane together about two years after we became friends and then I never read it and then this past year I finally listened to Just the Gist after a few months of recommending god and so now I I love that podcast um and then when you mentioned this I was like oh yeah I'll read it, whatever. I was like halfway through and I was like, God's sake, why does it always take me so long to get on board with your recommendations? Like, yeah. I think that's the, that's the nugget of any friendship. Particularly though, like... the ones that like are for me, like you know that I would like it, you know, like it's a bit different when you're like trying to convince me maybe talking about like a true crime documentary and I'm like, no. I still think you should watch Line of Duty. Yeah. <laughs> But like probably not. But like this, I should have listened. <laughs> I'm so glad that you appreciate it. Also, I think it's nice that you read it after Just the Gist because I also bought this book as soon as it came out a few years ago. Um, I went to see on that trip to Brisbane, this would have been why I got you to buy this book. On that trip, okay, so Caitlin and I went to, was that, it was when we went to see Ariana Grande and then... There was a crossover period. I stayed in Brisbane and then Jack came to stay with me and was we went to see my Grande favorite. Or was it Kinky Boots? Oh, probably it probably doesn't matter. Boots. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, we went to see a show 
We shared a hotel room. I stayed in the hotel after Caitlin left and there was a crossover of like a day between Caitlin leaving and Jack arriving because we were going to see My Favourite Murder live. And in that crossover period, I went to, it was very scary for me. I was very nervous. I went to a random pub in Brisbane by myself and went to a comedy show, Rosie's comedy show. Um, and I didn't realize that I could have taken a copy of Every Lie I've Ever Told to be signed. So she signed some like poster things for me instead. Cause I was like, I didn't know. And I already have a copy. Um, and I met someone else across the table from me with someone wearing a, um, a stay sexy, don't get murdered shirt. So I was like, Oh my God hi did you are you going to my favorite murder um and then I mentioned it to Rosie I was like yeah this person I just met and she was going to see them in Sydney so that's probably why anyway I've also had a copy of it for ages (laughs) funny stuff that happens when you yeah anyway I'm so proud of myself for going to that because I was absolutely shitting myself like absolutely terrified of being there by myself and I got my e-reader out and was like reading because I was like I'm in a bar by myself and I don't know what to do it was so scary it was so scary but that's the lengths I'll go to to see Rosie's comedy (laughs) um and I remember her telling this really funny story about um getting a a wax (laughs) and it just being absolutely hilarious and she recounts something similar in the book so um I'm so glad I'm so glad that you feel this way and yes that's where I was going with that story is that now I've listened to just the gist as soon as I started reading this and she mentioned Jacob I was like Jacob Jacob's in this yay (laughs) it was actually kind of sweet because I could picture him I could hear him saying the things to her in the book I know it was actually quite funny yeah and like it 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 was just a little thing, but like if I'd read it when it first came out, which I should have, but I didn't. Um, but if I had, I would have been like, oh, nice. That's cool. But now it's like an extra. I was just like, oh, I can hear him saying it because I love Jacob as well. Like, oh, the two of them are just the sweetest. I love, I love their podcast. Anyway, uh, that was a big tangent. Um, you wanted to kind of mention like favorite things in it or things that you particularly enjoyed yeah well I really liked the funny wedding bit that's quite funny and I did really enjoy reading I guess this is so hard to say like enjoy is a bit of an odd odd choice but I really liked reading about Rosie's friendships with Jacob and with her friend Tony who unfortunately passed away and that is kind of an overarching story in the book and about how, but about how different things that she was remembering about him and put in the book. And it was, it was so sad because you're like, oh, it's like my friend. And, and their stories are because, like, because they went to uni together and did like musicals and like watched sitcoms together and everything. I was like, I want to be your friend. I know. I know it was really I think it's very generous of Rosie to write in this way about and share so much of Tony and her friendship with Tony with us as well as general public um, as well as sharing her deep anguish at his death as well 
He yeah. seems like such a wonderful person. Like clearly just everyone just had so much love for him because he was a wonderful person. So I think it's lovely too that like now so many other people can appreciate that. Like it's it's a, it's a lovely sort of memorial to him really that yeah. she's shared this love and that other people can appreciate that and say, I wish I had a friend like him too. Like I think that's really, really sweet. Definitely. And also that like she talks about in there that like he really pushed her to be a writer and encouraged her endlessly. So I think it's really nice that her second book is, you know, written about him and about her love for him. Like that's that's the ultimate, like that's so sweet. Yeah, I know. It's really like beautiful and powerful. But um, also, as we said, I think before we hit record, that a lot of these things and, you know, a lot of other things that Rosie discusses in this book are quite hard to read. But then she's so funny that you are like almost, but like not taken out of it with the joke. You're just like, oh my God. And it becomes this funny light moment in between the darkness, I suppose. Mm. I I always read Rosie's stuff and just think, oh my God. God, I wish I could write this well. Like she's so funny, she's but then yeah. gets to these like truths and you're just like, how did you make me laugh and cry in like one thing? Like that's just, it's just so bizarre. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think I want to mention um, as one of my favorite things is actually one of the chapters, one of the chapters on abortion. So if you don't agree with that, this book isn't for you. But this chapter is a perfect example of how she can be talking about something serious and literally make me laugh out loud, make me stop and say, Jack, you need to listen to this. Oh, my God. And like, I know. Because it's just so clever. But also she just has this way of painting this picture. So she's talking about this room and she says, I sort of highlighted it in my e-reader because I was just like, this sentence is so good um, or this paragraph is so good. So She says, other than the bedside table, the rest of the room was empty. It was a very sad and very, very grimy, the kind of room you imagine the police raiding to find evidence after a creepy man with a thin moustache gets busted masturbating on the train. The only evidence they find is a collection of ceramic clowns. Like, I just love that imagery. Like, you're just there. You're like, yes, I know exactly this sort of Exactly. It's like you read that and you can see it. (laughs) Yeah. You can see the whole thing. It's just... It's just really, really good. But yeah, I just think, I think Rosie's very, she's also quite introspective. Is that, is that the right word? Of her role in like the news media and the website that she used to work for and things like that. It's really, really good. Yeah, definitely. I know there's a really good part of the book about that, about this like crazy cycle that kind of blows up around her for a few days. <laughs> And then, and she, yeah, she's like suddenly I was part of that, and it felt really bad. Yeah, and she was on the other side, which yeah. I think is something actually that the shameless girls sort of talk about a bit as well. And actually, we should link in the show notes. Rosie did an in conversation with the girls from Shameless, and she talks a lot about the anti cool girl, um, and also because they all used to work at Mamma Mia, talks a bit about that as well. So I will link that because I found that really good, and I think it had been a few years. Well, it's been more than a few years, been like five or six years since I read The Anti-Cool Girl then. So for me, it was like a good like, oh, yes, I remember that. Like, yeah, it's really, it's a, it's a good chat. Cool. Would you recommend this book to people and what would you say? Absolutely, I would recommend it. I just think if nothing else, 
it's a really well-written, powerful book that at the core I think is about friendship and how much your friends mean to you, which can't go wrong. I I agree. I think you've put it perfectly. You know, the subject matter probably isn't for everyone, but it is incredibly well-written and it is it's so funny. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's why we're being honest with you as well. Like if you don't, if none of that sounds like anything that you're interested in reading, don't read this book. Yeah, it's not it. for you. Like don't, don't read it if any of that bothers you. And I think it's okay to be like upfront about that stuff. Like we said, it's not like a plot spoiler. Um, I'd rather people went into it and weren't like, oh my God, I disagree completely. Why have you told me to read this book? Like yeah, it's not, it's not for everyone, but I think if any of that does sound of interest, you will find it very, very moving. And like I said, I think it's just overwhelmingly generous that Rosie, like, shared so much in on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, hopefully she has some more books coming out because I'll just, I'll like literally just take my money. I will do pay anything. I'm actually really sad that I'm not in Australia or anywhere near. I think it's Melbourne that they're doing live Just the Gist shows. Um, but one day, Caitlin, you and I will go. I'll be there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That concludes our little book club and we will move along into this week's interview. We do just need to say, though, for this interview as well, we will be talking about child sexual abuse um, and some potentially triggering topics there. If that isn't your thing, please don't listen to the episode. We obviously think it's worth it's worth discussing, but just be aware of that. Our guest this week is a woman after our own hearts, describing herself as the sort of kid who would skip lunch breaks to read and talk with the school librarian. She studied chemistry and worked as a research chemist after school, writing at night and on the weekends, but eventually she realised that her heart was really with writing and got her first publishing contract while pregnant with her second child. She now lives on a farm in Tennessee, her children are growing up and she has 18 books out in the world. Her latest novel, Fighting Words, is what we are mainly discussing today. Welcome to Better Words, Kimberly Brubecker Bradley. Thank you so much for having me. So um, we sort of checked with you before we started recording, but we just want to let people know that we're going to be discussing lots of stuff that happens in in the book. There's no sort of spoiler alerts or anything. So if anyone doesn't want spoilers, please go and read the book first and then come back and listen to our chat. But we just thought it would be too hard to discuss this book without sort of going into all these details. So as we mentioned, this is your 18th book for children, which is an amazing achievement. And it's also an incredible book. It's very difficult to read in a lot of places, but it's also really, really beautiful. Um, And so it's probably best if you start by telling us a bit about Fighting Words. Certainly. Well, Fighting Words really is the book of my heart. Um, It's the book I feel like I was put on the earth to write. I mean, I what's going to come after it, who knows, because this has taken both all of my skill and, and all of the, the craft that I learned over 18 years and, and put in a story that, that means a lot to me personally. This is the story of two sisters, uh, Della and Suki, and they have been each other's mainstay for the longest time. Their mother is in jail. They have been living with 
uh, one of her boyfriends who's not actually related to them at all. And then um, before the book even starts, something bad has happened and they're now into foster care. Um, I think you just call it in care in the UK, but we call it foster care. And um, Della is is relating her story. Uh, and she's, she's um, the sort of character you can't really repress. She, she uh, is herself all the way through. Um, and that includes, you know, having the uh, cursing more than anyone else in her grade and, and really being the sort of kid who will punch first and uh, discuss reasons why we shouldn't punch afterward. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's her coming to terms with what's happened to her and what's happened to her older sister, uh, who has always been her protector and is someone she has always seen as sort of invincible. And um, in, the, in the first couple of weeks uh, that they are in care, Suki starts to completely fall apart and, and Della finds out why and um, is trying to figure out how to make things as right as possible for her and also for her sister and how to heal from what they've been through. So it sounds, when you start really, especially when you start talking about the nitty gritty of what they've been through, it sounds very depressing, but uh, Della just cracks me up. The Della is short for delicious, which she would rather know what he knew. She says, once a boy tried to lick me to see if I was delicious, I kicked him in the, Suki says, I can't use bad words in a book. I kicked him in the zipper of his blue jeans. Let's say it like that. I love Della so much. Like, She's so yes, it does. It, when you sort of talk about, yes, this book deals with X, Y, Z, it sounds really harsh, but it is, it's like a joy to read as well. Like it's tough in places, but it's also really lovely and uplifting. And Della is She's just wonderful. She's wonderful. Thank you. I, I mean, I do. I feel like she, and I don't know where she came from. I, I didn't really set out to write this book. I was, um, I was a little angry one day and that's a, I keep saying it that way and I really should quit because honestly, some stuff happened in the news and I was absolutely furious. I was just consumed with rage over it. Um, I had, I'd had enough of the whole me too thing. And so I woke up in the morning and I was still angry and I sat down and the very first I, I just opened a new file and started typing as fast as I could go. And um, the very first things I wrote what became the finished first chapter of the book. The finished first paragraphs are almost untouched from what I wrote, just complete stream of consciousness, which is not how you write a novel. And, and especially beginnings, I have to usually go back and back and, you know, you get to the end and you revise it. And now, now you have to revise the beginning so it matches the end. And I didn't do any of that. I just... I wrote 39 pages in two days and sent them to my editor and my editor called up and said, you know, what, what the hell is this? <laughs> and I said that I promise I will turn it into a novel. And she said, okay, we're in. So then I had to go through seven revisions to turn it into a novel. So that's when I say it took all of the craft that I've learned. I meant it. I mean, it wasn't, it was this spark of inspiration, but that wouldn't have gotten you anything you could publish. It, it got you some interesting paragraphs. Yeah, and then to like pull it all together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you know, in the end, it still worked. My editor called the original thirty nine pages "lightning in a paper bag," which is my favorite description of anything I've written ever. So. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then you still had to make it a novel, and then we had to go back and make it a novel for children, which meant because I mean, I'm I'm vaguely aware of my audience when I'm writing because I write you know, for children and it's a genre, just like mysteries are a genre or romance or whatever. So yeah. you have, you know, conventions and, and things that you fit within 
uh, like I couldn't say all the bad words that Della would say. So uh, we turned them all into the word snow. She writes Which the word snow in place. Yes. And I think it's so it's, cute. But that's because I'm going to get in trouble if I put the words she really said. And there's no way Della wouldn't have really said them. So, you know, that's that's a, a way out. But we did that even even more so for the kind of psychologically intense scenes. You know, we went through them with experts and and sometimes they would say, you know, I wouldn't use this word because that's, you know, that's the sort of word we don't want to use when we're talking about this. Or, you know, a 10-year-old reading that is going to see this and a 14-year-old reading it is going to see this. But, you know, what the 10-year-old is going to read is not accurate. So we have to go back and, and change it so that they're seeing something that's true, even if they don't understand the whole implication. That kind of fine-tuning at the end took some some real care. Uh, we were really careful for it. I have a bunch of nephews, and, and the oldest one was nine when I was finishing this. And so in my mind, I had to be able to hand it to him when I was done. Yeah. I, I We do want to talk about that as well, like, like like I said, like there are things in here that would be tough to read in adult fiction. Yeah. And you certainly don't shy away from some of the details and some of the scenes that are depicted, especially scenes about self-harm. That scene is sort of depicted fully. Della witnesses it. That's so tough. But you've done it in a way that, you know, reading this as an adult really feels like it's written for a child audience. But as you say, that there are layers to it and older audiences will understand more how tough was that as a writer to to work through like you said it took seven drafts yeah I mean and that's really the thing is that you had to you had to originally write it not worrying about it yeah um, so that you could just get the emotion and the action of the characters on the page and then you had to go back and say okay you know if if we use these words that's that's too much or you know, let's let's be very precise here, particularly with the self-harm, because uh, you don't want to do anything that glorifies it. Of course. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, a lot of people say, well, why are you dealing with subjects like this and like sexual abuse and, you know, addiction and foster care for children? And it's because children have to deal with this stuff all the time and we don't give them the language to be able to talk about it. And the more we pretend that it doesn't happen the more they feel like they're the only kid that this has ever happened to. And, and, and then that makes them feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with them um, instead of that they can get help and that you can move on from the bad things that help that happen to you, which is really the message of the book that you can get past it um, as much as, as much as any book has a message. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you have to, you have to think hard about what you're writing, but I don't, I just don't think that it does kids any good to pretend like this stuff doesn't happen. Um, I don't. And there, there is that moment in the book too, where Della gets told, you know, this happens to a lot of other children as well. And she's like amazed that she's not the only person. She's amazed that she's not the only person that's had to deal with, with sexual abuse, but there's also a, the point where she's astonished to find, to think about the fact that, there are kids that don't deal with any sort of trauma, you know, that, that mm. have, um, that, you know, have both parents and, and don't have anybody incarcerated or, or um, addicted and, and aren't worrying about going hungry or anything like that. But, you know, the, what we call the adverse childhood experiences scale, uh, which is something sort of obliquely mentioned in the book. And, and I think that's, a, it's important to realize that there's, there's an awful lot of kids that are in, you know, that are bothered by these things. And I don't, 
you, you don't want the whole book to be a drag. I mean, you just don't want, and you don't want every, you know, children's book to be here. Let us, let us discuss all the problems you might have. Um, but once in a while, you need to have something that at least gives voice to the fact that they exist. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that is what is so good about reading. That's what everyone likes about reading is that you can step into someone else's shoes and learn about other people and other people's experiences, especially as a kid, because it's that classic thing that whatever your life and your family is, is you just assume that's what everyone else's is. It's the same for people who like don't have siblings versus having a big family. They just don't know what the other thing is like. Right. Yeah. The normal is whatever is whatever your your... is it's whatever you are and you're like what do you mean you don't have a sister or a brother or whatever it could be anything yeah no I remember my husband one time saying about something he grew up an only child and he said I thought that kind of stuff only happened on tv yes I mean it was probably my brother and I having an argument or something back when we were dating but you know I mean it just it was just outside of his his experience entirely so yeah what do you mean siblings fighting just happens outside of outside of sitcoms I can't believe that wow and also this is you know pointless I mean you guys are just being idiots both of you and well yeah I mean (laughs) it doesn't always have a plot point No. (laughs) um, yeah I mean that's that's true for all sorts of things too I mean Mm, it's um one of the things though that's really surprised me is the number of teachers that have read this book and and sort of felt like it opened their eyes to sort of the children beyond the classroom that Della Della does not get along with her teacher in this book. Um, and, and part of it is Della's fault, but part of it is also the teacher's refusal to see that Della is reacting to her circumstances, not necessarily to the teacher. Yeah. Um, you know, she's had a, a horrific weekend and she comes in um, to school and right away there's a spelling test that she forgot all about. And so she's staring at the page, completely unable to even hear the words because she's still um, you know, her sister's in the hospital and she's, um, yeah, she's processing back. everything else. Yeah. She's, she's overwhelmed by everything. And the teacher tells her, you know, you have to write something down. So she fills the entire page with swear words and, um, you know, gets sent to the principal. Well, I mean, it's, she's not responding to the spelling test. She's responding to what's happened to her sister and, you know, but the teacher takes it very much as though she's she's responding to the te- spelling test or to the discipline or whatever. And so I would think most teachers would know that, but um, I've been a little surprised by some of the mail I've gotten there. So if that's true, good. You know, yeah, that is good. I wonder if um I wonder if that is changing ever so slightly with different lockdowns, and it's different in every country, of course. But I think um, in England, at least, the fact that so much homeschooling has been taking place. It's it's both good and bad because it means that, you know, I, I guess parents are a bit more involved, but there has obviously been a, a bad side to that. And that is that people aren't getting referred or children aren't getting referred and there are in dangerous situations and stuff. And I think, I guess that just gets highlighted more in this book. And it's, it's very, but I thought, I definitely thought that you dealt with that in a really interesting way that the teacher sort of as an adult, I could see, I was like, you're being so unfair to her. Like this is, you know, even the family tree exercise as well, that it, she wasn't the only child in the class. And she sort of said, kind of flinched at it. And yeah. She's like, I could see other children not wanting to do that. And you as the teacher couldn't like, that shouldn't be my job almost. And I think, yeah. Yeah. And and unfortunately, um, and some of that, you know, my previous book, uh, The War That Saved My Life is about a World War II evacuee in England. 
and when I was researching that book, I, I researched uh, a lot of stories of kids who were either in foster care as older kids or adopted as older kids, because that was sort of the similar emotional story to my, my evacuee. And, and I heard a bunch of stories like that. You know, you've got some child who's clearly been adopted from a different country. You know, skin color doesn't match the skin color of the parents. And the family tree just fills them with grief because, you know, which family? Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, and, and you, you write down one, you're lying about the other one. You, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't win in these kind of situations. So uh, some, of, some stuff came from, from um, that book also. Yeah. yeah, we do want to talk about that a little bit at the end as well, because I know that's been incredibly successful and well-loved by a lot of people as well. Um, one of the things that happens in the book is this conversation around consent. And obviously, yes, the, the book deals more broadly with sexual abuse. And obviously, there is a discussion around that. But I thought it was really interesting that this discussion around consent and bullying and a boy in the class is included. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? And I guess what really interested me as well was the way that you depicted that meeting between the parents as well. And this idea that one, the mother of the bully sort of is like, oh, it's just boys being boys. You're overreacting to all of this. So why did you want to bring that in as well? Well, um, so when the child, the children reading uh, Fighting Words, you know, there's there's a high, much higher than people want to talk about uh, number of kids who have been unfortunately sexually assaulted in some way, and they're going to read one thing about the the big story with um, Della and Suki and and Clifton, who was taking care of them. But other kids are going to read it in a different way because they don't have any experience to go on, thankfully, you know, and, and, and that's the majority of them. And so they kind of recognize that something bad has happened but, and they, they don't know as much how to connect with it, but almost any small kid has had, you know, issues of consent where, I mean, even if it's something like, you know, some elderly relative you've never met and, you know, they say, give me a hug and a kiss and you have absolutely no desire to be hugged or kissed. And yet, you know, somebody tells you you have to and you're being embraced by this squishy elderly person you don't want to touch. Um, I mean, that's a minor consent issue, but it's still consent. And so there's this micro part of the story where Della is dealing with a boy in her classroom that she really doesn't get along with. And he thinks it's funny to try to snap the bra snaps of girls, but Della and her friends are too young to wear bras. And so he, he just pinches her back and calls her a baby. And that actually, that comes from my fourth grade. I remember boys doing that when I was in about year six. Oh, yeah. God. See, so I did a, I, I was doing a, a panel a couple of years ago at our National Council of Teachers of English. And there were seven children's um, writers all on this panel, all women. And the only girl, only woman that had not had uh, her bra snapped was the one who grew up in Pakistan. But all of us who were about my age, remembered it as humiliating, embarrassing, and that nothing bad happened to the boys because of it. You know, that it was the, it was all this boys will be boys. You know, you don't have the right to say no is what they're really saying. Yeah. You know, you can't, this makes you uncomfortable and you have to put up with it. Well, if we keep saying that to girls, you know, then they're putting up with something How that makes them a little that more, it's just, it becomes this gateway where you, you, you've been taught how to endure things rather than how to set boundaries. Um, and I really think girls need to be able to 
set boundaries. And boys too, frankly. I one of the things that I was sort of startled about because people now tell me their stories is how many boys are affected by sexual abuse too. And they're even less likely to talk about it than girls because yeah. um, you know, boys aren't supposed to be. Um mm. You know, because it's it's a weakness thing or possibly yeah. a, a gay thing. You know, does it make them gay if somebody assaults them? No, it doesn't. But, you know, when you're 10, how do you make sense of that? So, yeah, yeah there's a lot. There's so much to unpick in our society. Yeah. These things are, I mean, I guess most of the time we don't even realize that that's why we might think those things or that's why we might act a certain way. So then in that discussion as well, um, obviously I mentioned that one of the, there's a, there's a parent sort of conference and you sort of presented the argument that often gets pulled up about these things like, you know, oh, that's just a minor thing. Don't worry about it. Um, why did you want to, why did you want to show that a, a bit between the parents, I guess, that maybe would usually be hidden from children? Well, I guess because for it to be in the book, I have to have somebody saying it. Um, and yeah, Trevor's mother is, is really Trevor's mother is just tired of her kids getting in trouble and, and, and overwhelmed and doesn't want, you know, God, I mean, if he gets suspended, she's got to deal with him, you know, then he's at home and just take work off and it's a pain in the neck. And so it's, it's much to her advantage to just brush it under the, but, uh, but the other thing that's important in that is that Della is speaking directly to Trevor, um, uh, saying, how would you like it if I did this? You know, what if I grabbed your crotch? Well, that uh, that wouldn't be the same. And she said, well, that would be that's how it makes me feel. So he is understanding in a way that he didn't before how it's made her feel, which is as soon as you can empathize with the other person, you know, you're you're not going to want to do that to them. Because I don't think he was I mean, he's not Satan. He's just a slightly out of control boy. I mean, which, yeah. you know, is what, you know, 40 percent of all boys or more. I mean, you know. I mean, he's he's getting away with crap, but he's not he's not going to grow up and be Hitler. No, uh, and no. and as you sort of talked about before, there's that allusion to a bit of a life outside school. Like, is he being bullied a bit by his brother? He's just sort of copying what his brother does. Is that behaviour that they've seen from you know their dad, for example? And so I do think that it's sort of dealt with in a way where you say like this behaviour is not acceptable, but also like you said, Trevor, Trevor's not. He's not an evil person. Right. No, it's just learned behavior and he has to learn yeah. why it's not okay. Yeah, and, and, and Della recognizes that. I mean, she has that moment of realizing that she so badly wanted friends and he so badly wants friends. And this is, this is his path toward getting other boys to, to, you know, laugh at him or, or, you know, be friends with him, which still doesn't give him the right to do it. But I think it also, because again, the kids reading this, I mean, some of the kids reading it are going to be the kid that snapped the bra strap. Yeah. And and I don't want them thinking they're Satan. I mean, I want them <laughs> thinking, okay, that was not good. <laughs> yeah. do it again and you're but probably yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, but not I'm due. I'm a bad person. I'm evil. I mean, that's not what you want yeah. your 10-year-olds think. Because yeah, and I mean that's the that's the thing too. Sometimes when we say to, when we say to kids like don't don't do that, yeah. we expect them to know why not to yeah. do that without like actually sitting down and explaining to them this is why it's bad, this is why it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it doesn't make you evil if you've done that before or said this thing before, but we're going to move on and we're going to learn from it. Yeah. And quite frankly, I think that's a conversation a lot of adults could do with having as oh, well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but but <laughs> Here's why it's unacceptable to use those words. 
you know, yeah. it's, it's a good one. I mean, there's a lot of words that I heard frequently when I was a child that my children would know to never say yeah. because it's become unacceptable. Thank God. Yeah. But, you know, but somebody had to sit down and say, you know what, this is. Yeah. We probably shouldn't be saying this. Yeah. yeah. Here's a, here's a re- modern example for you. We had our Super Bowl last night, the football game. Um, between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And, you know, 90% of America was really over it because we don't like these teams. And um, <laughs> my husband doesn't like Tom Brady. So it was just all sort of misery. But, of course, we had to watch it because it's the Super Bowl. Yeah, so, um, yeah. <laughs> But there's a, a children's book writer in uh, here named Carol Lindstrom who just – wrote the book that I looked to see if I have my copy up, but I don't, that won the Caldecott for illustration. The Caldecott goes to the illustrator, but both the illustrator and the author are Native Americans. They're they're registered to tribes that are indigenous to this country and um, registered members. And she said, okay, so here's the NFL doing this whole like two minute commercial about, you know, racial justice and the money they're going to pour into racial justice well, one of the names is the Kansas City Chiefs, which is yeah. a racist name, according to, you know, all the Native Americans and a lot of non-Native Americans. And, you know, we've been changing some of those names, but we, you know, right in the middle of this game being touted as this amazing thing, they're trying to say we're, you know, racially inclusive while still being complete idiots. So, yeah, there's still some way to go, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at least we're starting to have those conversations. So yeah, Carol put that up immediately, you know. Yeah. When you were writing Fighting Words, did you experience any concerns or pushback or have any discussions like that with your publisher or your agent? Oddly enough, no. I mean, they were they were committed, as I was, to, to being responsible about it. But even, I mean, when when they called and said, you know, we want to make you an offer, I said, do I, you know, do I get to keep the self-harm and the abuse and the, and the, you know, addiction and 86 times that we use the word snow. And she said, yes. And I said, really? And she said, we're in, we said that. And and they really were. And it, and it's a, I hate to use the word groundbreaking because it sounds like I'm being tooting my own horn, but it's, there aren't very many books for this age group that tackle these subjects head on, not obliquely, yeah. um, but no, straight in. Had groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we'll say it for you. Yeah, I will say it. It definitely is. But they they were as equally committed to it as I was. And I was so pleased um, and so happy. And I told them that, you know, they they now have to have to like just reject everything I write if they want to get rid of me because now I love them and I will keep them forever. <laughs> but, you know, we did. Um, I don't know who's on the back of the UK Australia edition, but um, on the back of the American edition, we got a lot of prominent American authors to say loving things about it these are friends of mine mostly and but my my editor said well, it would help if we had some nice blurbs so that people wouldn't be quite so afraid of it I think they were afraid that you know libraries would be afraid to have it have you experienced any of those problems a very tiny amount not much at all I have I actually was quite surprised um, in the United States the the reviews were uniformly stellar I mean just they uh, and then uh, just recently won a Newbery Honor, which is runner-up for our Newbery Award. It's going to be a, you know, a beautiful sticker on the book. What that's going to do is keep it in print. This is going to be a hard book to use in classrooms. Uh, the War That Saved My Life, they used in tons of classrooms. It was on all these state book awards, which is 
uh, where, you know, the kids are supposed to read and vote on their favorite, but they get a list of 10 or 20 books to read. So, you know, it was when you get on those things, you, it drives up sales, but this, this is going to keep it in all the libraries and keep it in the bookstores. And that was so important to me for this book because I really yeah. want the kids that need it to get to it. To be able to find it. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that, you know, the, the previous honours for the war that saved my life, the fact that that's been used in schools sort of gave you a bit more leeway in terms of people were willing to maybe put aside thoughts they had about the book and think, actually, no, I, I really trust her previous work. I've had a couple of reviewers say that. I don't know. It's it's probably too early to say in terms of, of teachers and students and things like that. I have heard from students that have read it. I have not heard anything negative from any children. And, and that's true. I actually haven't heard. I have heard a very few, uh, way less, honestly, than I was expecting, negative comments on things like, you know, Goodreads or um, Amazon. Um because uh, I really thought, I mean, I do think eventually there's going to be somewhere is going to ban this book, but, um, you know, Texas somewhere. You're just like bracing yourself. For- yeah, <laughs> I mean, probably, but uh, maybe not. Maybe maybe we're past that. But I have yet to hear from a kid that didn't like it. I think it is testament to how well-written it is that you really do bring this loveliness into such a, a, a dark subject as well. But it still feels really honest and encouraging in a way that it makes it makes you feel safe reading it. And I hope that that's the experience that younger readers get as well. And I don't I don't know if we've said that um, Della's only ten, and obviously the the age kind of that's the age that this is aimed at as well. Um, obviously, older readers, as we've discussed, there's lots of layers. So yeah, it's just it's a really it's a beautiful. Like we obviously urge everyone to read it that's why we've had we're having you on the podcast because we think it's a beautiful novel but it is such um like a topic that needs to be talked about as well and I think the sensitivity and the way that you've done it is incredible and there is a lovely moment in the novel when one of Della's friends lends her a book and says that she loves it because it makes her feel less alone and that's why we love books, but I'm sure that that is what you hope that your books do for ch- lots of children. And the book I'm mentioning, although I don't, I don't give it its name, but I describe the plot enough, is uh, called How to Steal a Dog, and it's by Barbara O'Connor. Oh, cool. What a lovely little shout out. <laughs> um, so as we mentioned before, you've obviously written a lot of other novels, and people probably, especially in Australia, probably know you mostly through The War That Saved My Life and the subsequent um, sequel, I guess. Um, so you mostly tend to, to stick to historical research. How do you go about researching those novels? Is there lots of digging? Do you get the idea first and then go back? Or is it, yeah, how do you do it? It's, it's, there's a lot of back and forth. So um, the word that saved my life, I started out uh, just being interested in England in the home front. Um, it's my little obsession. Like, honestly, home front England is like, well, I can't even describe to you. It's, it's fascinating um, because in the United States and in Australia, you know, we sent people to fight, but we didn't yeah. get bombed with the exception of Pearl Harbor, which was, you know, one place in one day, a long way from the rest of the U.S. You know, so mostly if you were an American or an Australian kid, you know, your dad maybe went off to fight and it was scary and there was rationing and it was sort of boring, but that's it, you know, and if you're actually in uh, Europe, I mean, there's in mainland Europe, I mean, you know, Poland, you're, everything's bombed. 
you know, it's not, it's going to be much harder, but England had the bombings, but also this being able to sort of fight back, you know, with, with the things that they did there. I mean, they were never invaded. I mean, it's, it was a very different war. And then of course the evacuation is entirely unique. I just, I just found it fascinating. I mean, you, you would send your kids away to live with complete strangers and you just put on a bus and you don't even know where they're going to go. And, you know, so for most of those kids, that was like the worst possible thing, you know, because especially because really what they're telling him is we're going to send you to safety while your parents stay right home and get bombed, you know? Mm, and yeah. so I thought, well, well, what if for one kid, it was the best thing that could happen? You know, what if it was the absolute thing that saved her life? Who would that kid have to be? And so I worked back from that and then worked forward. Um, and meanwhile, I'm just, you know, I'm reading my my family starts laughing because they're like, oh, I see we have an obsession about England now, you know, as the, as the books start <laughs> piling in. Um, and then I did, I did actually go to England to research it because um, oh. I had been there before when I was quite young, but I hadn't, I wanted to put Ada and, Ke and her brother in Kent because Kent is, was, was a place where they sent evacuees, which then became the only dangerous part of England at the beginning of the war during the battle of Britain. Um, so, I mean, that's because, you know, whatever you, you don't want your book to get boring. So, you know, if you drop a bomb every once in a while, that livens things up. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and you know, truthfully, so I mean, the war is useful for some action, I suppose. In yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's have yeah. something explode. So we had, um, so I went to Kent. Well, it was a family vacation, but my daughter and I got completely lost with me driving this little car in Kent. And um, it was, it was a lovely day. Um, but I, I wanted to try to see what it would look like through Ada's eyes. If you'd only ever been in this poverty stricken part of a city, what would all this stuff look like? I mean, we have, there are so many different, uh, especially online, there are so many accounts that where the evacuees wrote their stories afterwards. So we know that never having seen grass before was actually fairly common the London evacuees but I still wanted it oh my gosh I'm gonna have a whole new research rabbit hole to keep me interested oh, in lockdown yeah, you can oh. go right and and let <sighs> yeah you get started online and you'll never get out so um and then you know you have to research enough of actual history that you know when the major things happen like when I was the war that I finally won I I forgot about Pearl Harbor I mean, yeah, I know you're in England, but the Americans entered the war because of Pearl Harbor. That was probably something you would be aware of even in a small town <laughs> in England. So I had to go back and fit it in because I was like, that back in. You know, we've gotten three weeks past and we haven't mentioned. Uh, so, you know, so I would have to keep a little running. And then, you know, is Pearl Harbor a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Sunday? Because that matters. I mean, yeah. you know, are you going to be at church when you hear it? Are you going to be at school? Are you, you know, standing in line to get the whale meat they were trying to sell you instead of? actual food and then and then you just make a bunch of stuff up i very <laughs> deliberately don't mention the village in kent because we were in rye which actually is not in kent it's like a quarter mile over the line they're crazy about their counties over here i oh my I know. goodness so i thought rye was in kent and i have been firmly corrected but rye is a charming town if it's you've ever beautiful. been in it um, yeah it it's beautiful. fantastic and they have this old I don't know. It's a tower. It's a medieval tower that they sell touristy things in now. And, um, but, but it has been all sorts of things, you know, it was Henry yeah. VIII built it or something like that. And so I've, I've been there and, um, and I asked them if, um, what they know about rye during world war two. And the guy says, Oh, and he, he goes rootling and pulls out this hand type pamphlet and sells it to me for 50 P and it's 
I open it up and it's every place that got bombed in Rye. And it's wow. the day, the date, the time of day, exactly the address and what happened to the building. Wow. So, oh know, my God. Day, Brilliant. How useful. A bomb fell at such and such, you know, Main Street and took out 14 windows, but you know, left the roof intact. Oh my goodness. And that was fascinating. On the other hand, I thought, I can't now call anything Rye in my book. Like, you couldn't call it Rye anyway, but I couldn't call it something else because somebody's going to call me up and say, that never That's happened. That's not what happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it was 12 windows, not 14. No, <laughs> until Wednesday, you know. Oh, <laughs> so oh I thought, my goodness. Yeah, we're just not going there. We won't. Um, yeah. If you haven't read it already, I recommend Margot and Me. Juno Dawson they are vacuees in Wales oh nice yeah but there's like a there's a 90s storyline it's young adult and a young girl her mum has cancer she thinks she's recovering from cancer but they have to go and live with her grandmother who she absolutely detests but then she finds her grandmother's old wartime diary from when her grandmother was an evacuee in that Welsh village and her grandmother she even like flirted she maybe had an illicit affair. <laughs> All this stuff. Yeah. She had a life. She was a human. She had feelings. <laughs> it's it's but it's absolutely beautiful. Oh, no, I'll, I'll get it right yeah. off. Did she go to the Imperial War? Oh movie? yeah. Oh yeah. But that was it's, fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. And we went to Churchill's um bunker. Yeah. The I, could, war I could my um children at the time were in eighth grade and no, they were they were in ninth grade and twelfth grade, so they were both in in high, American high school, but yeah. not university. Um, and I couldn't get them out of there. I couldn't get yes. them out of Churchill, the Churchill Museum. I, you know, I mean, I was taking notes, I'm wandering around, and all that. I said, okay, guys, you know, thanks for your patience. Like, thanks, I'm like, done no. now. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're like, shh, shh, we're watching this. You know, they're shh, go away, mom, we're not done. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's awesome. so wonderful. It, it was really, that. it was really cool. Um, we mentioned at the start of this interview that Fighting Words is your 18th book, which is absolutely amazing. How do you think the children's publishing industry has changed since your first novel? And how do you think you've changed as a writer? It's a big question. Okay, so that's two questions. How has children's yeah. literature changed and how has, uh, children's literature has changed enormously and um, and I'm really glad for that, and I'm really happy to be part of that. We're a lot better at being sort of well. There's a, a thing here in the United States. I don't know if you have it there. It's, we need diverse books as an organization, uh, but we started looking at who the authors and illustrators of our children's books were in terms of you know race and gender and sexuality and different things like that um, versus who the children themselves were and you know who were we essentially it was a bunch of of white people writing a bunch of white books and yeah writing their own stories and and that actually runs true for in economics too because uh writers tend to be come from middle class backgrounds and so nobody was um here it would be food stamps you know we get food stamps to help low-income families afford food well one out of three American kids comes from a family that gets food stamps and you'd be very hard pressed to find a children's book that mentions it. So we're doing a much better job now of starting to um, open up. Uh, and, it, and it's helped a lot that we've had brilliant writers, um, Angie Thomas, 
Nick Stone and these uh, Nikki Grimes. She's been around a long time, but she's getting more press. Carol Boston Weatherford, who's a friend of mine. Uh, you know, people are writing about different stories. Elizabeth Acevedo, that's, if you don't know her, you should read her books. Yeah. Clap When You Land was astonishing. So um, we're finally getting better at that. Um, and at the same time, um, I think the quality of writing is getting better. I think um, I think we're really, this year, um, you know, because I, I had fighting words out, I was kind of paying attention to the, you know, the chit chat about the awards and things. And there are so many good books out this year. Uh, and, you know, British authors, Hilary McKay with the Skylark Larks War um, and Elizabeth Wine with the Enigma Gain. And, you know, I mean, I know. Code Name Verity was one of my favorite books of all time. And I, after reading Margot and Me, I read the Enigma Game. And yeah. Yeah. So, and also Elizabeth says the next time I come to Scotland, which God willing will be sometime in 2021, she's going to take me flying. Amazing. Last time I was in Scotland, she and I went to Stirling Castle together and harassed the poor security guards trying to get more information out of them than they had. So, um, so, um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. So, but I mean, there are all these brilliant books coming out now. And I thought, um, you know, picture books, um, I've got a couple over there, Honeybee, which is just about bees. And you would think, oh, Honeybee, but it, I mean, it won American awards and it's brilliant. Um, and Christina uh, Sutornvat won two Newbery honors this year. Uh, one for fiction, A Wish in the Dark, which is Les Miserables set in Thailand for children. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And uh, the other one was called All 13, and it's the story of the Thai boys that were trapped in the cave and the effort mm -hmm. it took to rescue them. And I, I've read that, and it's astonishingly good. I mean, it's nonfiction. It's astonishingly good. Wow. So I, I think we're, like, in the middle of this huge renaissance for children's literature that really, really pleases me. As for myself as a writer, um, my first book was called Ruthie's Gift, and it was my first published book, it was based on stories my grandmother told me about growing up on an Indiana farm at the turn of the century with three older brothers and three younger brothers and no sisters. Uh, and I knew almost all of my great uncles also. So this was this, you know, ode to family stories. And I can't read it now. It's It got great reviews. It, I mean, it won an award for debut novel, all this stuff. It has so many adverbs in it. And I want to go through with my red pen and you know, so certainly my style has uh, has adapted and I hope gotten better. Fifteen years ago, I started a book about Thomas Jefferson's children with an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings. And that was a very hard book to write. And it made me a much better writer. So I suddenly learned to write a lot harder than I used to. I mean, so seven drafts is now pretty much that's probably on the low end of average for me right now. Oh, wow. I wish that weren't true. Um <laughs> Because but I, if, if you look at it, if you look at it as a way of, you know, practicing your craft and, yeah. and getting better and stuff, yeah. and that's, yeah, I mean, I personally, I love the editing process. I mean, I've never had to edit a novel. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I can't so I love it most that, of the time. But, but I, that, that for me, that process yeah. of being edited is when I can feel, I, I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely learning and getting better. So, right, right. So, in the past, I would have been happy probably to stop it two, three drafts and the books were pretty good, but I've learned that if you keep pushing, you know, yeah. that then they're better. better. 
Yeah. And I'd rather write better. So, well, thank you. We appreciate you writing better. This book is incredible, very moving. Um, in in many in many ways, like we've said, not sad all the time either. Some really funny funny bits in it as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, where can people find you online or get in touch with you? Uh, KimberlyBrewmakerBradley.com is my website. Site. So if you just spell my name and add a .com to it, and there is a button there if you want to send me an email. Nice and easy. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. And I hope that you can get over to England again soon and go flying in Scotland. Yes, yes that would be very much. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.